as people, we don't tend to talk about money. We don't tend to talk about giving. What I want to, to ensure that we do periodically as a church is to break the silence on these matters. To change the narrative. Because the Bible's not embarrassed or silent on the matters of generosity, on the matter of money. So what's my main point today? Let me just give you the main point right out front, and then we'll break some things down. Let me say this. Generosity is about more than money, but it's not about less than money. And, and what Paul is clearly talking about here, you see it, it's clear, right? He's talking about a collection of money raised to relieve those that are in poverty, that are suffering. So I believe the, the point we can derive from 2 Corinthians and 8 and 9 is that we're stewards of all that God has given us. We are stewards of all that God has entrusted to us. That includes money, that includes our time, that includes our gifts. So God gives these things to us and then holds us accountable for those things. So, so we'll, we're accountable to God for how we use our money. We're accountable to God for how we steward our gifts. We're accountable to God for how we steward our time. This is true for us as Christians. We're God's money managers. We're God's money managers. The money came from him, and then we manage it. We should be honored by the responsibility that God has given us. We should be, remember that we're accountable to God. So two concepts. If we would be wise stewards of what God has entrusted to us, if we would be wise money managers for God, then there's two concepts we need to grasp. The first one is idolatry. The second one is generosity. So we're going to deal with the first one, idolatry. We've got to grasp that concept. Because if we don't grasp that concept, then, then we won't allow the grace of God to, to shape our thinking as it relates to the things that he's entrusted to us. And we'll never be the generous, big-hearted, generous people that God has called us to be. So two concepts, idolatry and generosity. Let's deal with idolatry. This is going to be a little background. I'm trying to set this series up for us. This is true, though. We're fascinated with money. Most of us are. I've met very few people that aren't. We're caught up. It's like that, you know, money. We fall into its trance. And this could be illustrated so many ways. I'll choose to illustrate it this way. So many songs written about money. Isn't it true? The Beatles, give me money. That's what I want. Dire straits. I'm talking to my 80s peeps in here. Money for nothing. Steve Miller. Come on, take the money and run. Notorious B.I.G. Mo money, mo problems. Lil Wayne. Got money. This one's for, for my real 80s peeps out there. What 
people do for money. You remember that one. I got some head nods there. Divine sounds, if you were wondering who wrote, who sang that song. One of my favorites by the Pet Shop Boys. I've got the brains. You got the looks. Let's make lots of money. (laughs) And probably the most famous song about money, I would say, Pink Floyd, money. Money, get away. You get a good job with more pay, and you're okay. Money, it's gas. Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. New car, caviar, four-star daydream. Think I'll buy me a football team. Money, get back. I'm all right, Jack. Keeps your hands off of my stack. See it, right? It's all over. Money, there is a deceptive lure of money. I want to keep qualifying this, though. It's not that money is all bad. It's that it's, it can be an idol. You can make an idol out of anything. But money, it's easy, right, to make an idol out of money. Why? Because there's this deceptive lure to it. I was just talking to a young man recently. He, the Super Bowl was coming. And, 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 and you see all these ads, DraftKings. Um, what are the other ones? Like, there's, it's all over the place. These, these, it's like gambling is legal now. And you can, you can make a bet on just about, I'm serious, you can make a bet on anything. And they're just trying, hey, join now for, for free. You join. We'll give you $100 to gamble with. And so, so uh, this young man I was talking to, he and a bunch of his friends sold us on the Super Bowl. They could make a bet on the Super Bowl. And if you sign up, they give you $50 to play with. And so they signed up as a group, made their bet, and won, he won $750. And so he was calling me to, to ask, did I do something wrong? Like, I didn't use any of my own money. But, but I made money gambling. And now I'm wondering what I should do with it. Like, is this blood money? Like, like, like should, I, should I keep this? What should I do with this? And we had a really good conversation about the lure of, of being trapped in, in this idea that you can get money for nothing. They, you, they give you $50, you play. So now I got $750. Should I make another bet? Listen, they're not in business to keep paying out money. <laughs> you know that, right? But that's easier said than done. Isn't it true? You get sucked into that. That's what they want. They want you to win first so that they can get you to keep playing the game. It's a trap. Money, there's a deceptive lure. $50 turns into $750. If I could do that every day this week, I have a lot of money at the end of the week. Read the Proverbs. Read the Proverbs with this in view. Read the entire book of Proverbs and just write free money. On the top, and I'll tell you, the father is warning his son about the dangers of free money. What is money? 
It's a medium of exchange. It's a resource for getting the things that you want. Getting the things that you need. Getting the things that you want. Getting rid of things that you don't want. <laughs> and it's a, it's a resource for gaining power and influence in society. It's like magic. The more you have of it, the more you want it. If you have more, we expect that it will open more doors for us. The more you have, the more reluctant you are to part with it. It's alluring. It's deceptive. Why? Why is this? Because let's think about the opposite. Poverty. Limited resources are a sign of weakness. A sign of inadequacy in our culture. But wealth is a sign of stability. A sign of security. A sign of strength. And in our pride, friends, in our pride, we shrink back from weakness. We shrink away from inadequacy and we embrace whatever looks like strength. And so it's easy to make an idol out of money. We don't have to do that. Jesus says that we shouldn't do that. But what I'm trying to say is there's this vulnerability in us to idolize what we think will give us power, what we think will give us success. And are you guys with me? You see this? we got to understand this concept. we got to understand the concept of idolatry because we end up worshiping our bank balance, our investment portfolios, our material possessions, and God, the transcendent, triune creator and sustainer of all things who is currently and always in action for our salvation takes second place to money. Jesus warned against it so much. Jesus told his followers over and over again, he warned against the deceptive lure of money. He said, famously, you can't serve God and money. Hebrew word, mamona, mammon. Can't serve God and mammon. He didn't mean just, nobody even uses cash anymore. He didn't mean like the physical stuff, like worshiping the physical stuff. Mammon means the stuff that the money will buy you. Material things, property, possessions, success, power. Jesus warned against that. Remember the rich man that Jesus told a story, the rich man who told himself, hey, you got plenty of money stacked up, relax, eat, and drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the money you got stacked up, whose will it be? Jesus told that story. Remember the rich young ruler? Remember that? He came to Jesus. He ran up to Jesus. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Jesus gave him a long response, but he told him, you only lack one thing. One thing you lack. Go. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me and you'll have treasure 
in heaven. Let go of what you're trusting in. Let go of the idol of money so that your hands are free to grab a hold of me. The world says money will save you. Jesus says only he can save you. Paul told his disciple Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's a trap. And the pursuit of it, Paul told Timothy in his letter to him, it'll plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So what should we do? What should we do when our needs have been met and we still have some money left, when we find ourselves blessed by God and, and blessed by success, when the business that you start or that you're running becomes profitable, what should we do? Jesus and Paul give the same answer over and over and over again. Use money not for yourself, but for God. Use money to spread the fame of Jesus. Use money to spread the kingdom. Use it to help people in need because you're God's money managers. Luther, he's always good to quote on a Sunday morning. It was Luther who said, every Christian needs three conversions. Three conversions? I thought, I'm working on one. Luther said we need three conversions. He said every Christian needs the conversion of the mind to gospel truth. So you need your mind converted to the truth that you're a sinner in need of grace and God has provided for that for you in Jesus. And if you put your faith in him, you will have life in his name eternal. That's a, that is a conversion of the mind. But he also said we need a conversion of the heart. The conversion of the heart is that we would allow Jesus to be our king, to be our master, to serve him, to be our Lord. But then he said, you need a third conversion. Every Christian needs a third conversion. Conversion of the mind, conversion of the heart. And then he said, you need a conversion of the wallet. Conversion of the purse. Conversion of the bank account. Laying everything at Jesus' feet. So all that you have, all that I have is from you. And so I want to do my best to manage it so that, so that you're pleased with me. So that your fame spreads. And according to Luther, that last conversion was usually the last one. People's mind, hearts get converted, but the conversion of the wallet took a little time. When it comes to money, all, all we're saying is under this point of idolatry and understanding this concept, if we would be good money managers, we need to understand the concept of idolatry. And what I'm saying here is when it comes to money, we need to get sin out of the driver's seat and get Jesus into the driver's seat. When that happens, we'll use and view money as a gift used for glorifying him. You with me? So I'm saying... We need to be good money managers. Two concepts we need to understand. We just covered the concept of idolatry. Now let's cover the concept of generosity. And this is where we're going to walk. We're going to do a big overview. So I'm going to need you guys, your attention here for, for another 10 minutes or so. And then we'll sing a song in response. 
But we need to work through what is Paul doing in this letter to the Corinthians? This will help us to understand generosity because this section is about what it means to be generous. Paul must have known that this plan he had, and it was a plan that he had for all the Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches that he had planted, he was going to ask them, he was going to call on them, including this particular church in the city of Corinth, to contribute to a major collection to the relief for the relief of the Jewish Christians who were suffering in poverty. And Paul knew this was a bold project. He was going to need to convince them of this so that he might have success in this venture. What's his venture? To raise a sum of money that would relieve the poverty and the, and the, the, the difficult circumstances that the Jewish Christians were facing in Jerusalem and to raise enough money that would de demonstrate on the part of the Gentile church's real love to the Jewish Christians. That's what, that's what he was endeavoring to do. And it was a project of faith. He knew he wasn't going to be able to, he wouldn't be right for him to manipulate them. This was a project he was going to trust God with. So it is, Brandywine Grace, if we would become the big-hearted, generous people that God has called us to be, it will be a project of faith. Generosity project. So what's going on in 2 Corinthians? We haven't preached from uh, Corinthians in a while. I can't remember preaching from the second letter of Corinthians. Paul's primary purpose, this is his purpose in this letter, that when he gets to Corinth, when he makes his way, when he finally gets there, that they'll be ready with their collection. It'll be complete and ready, and then he'll go on his way to Jerusalem with the money that he's collected from these churches, of which the church in Corinth is just a part. These two chapters are the central purpose of the entire letter. You can make a mark in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are the central purpose of, of the, they're at the heart of the letter that he's written, the second letter that we know of that he's written to the church in Corinth. And Paul has this fear he has this fear that if you read the whole letter in its entirety, there's fear that he won't be taken seriously. That his leadership, his apostolic leadership that God has called him to will be called into question. He's already under criticism from this church. And he fears also that he's going to alienate them. Why? Because his first letter, go back and read 1 Corinthians, it was very severe. There was a real critical letter that he wrote to them and a severe discipline that he brought to this church. And also, he had told them that he was going to visit them, but he didn't visit them as he had planned. And so Paul's anxious in writing this letter to them because they might think he's unpredictable. They might think he's self-serving like a lot of the other traveling preachers of the day. He was vulnerable to them thinking he's using us. He's exploiting us. We know the Jews are his favorite because he's a Jew, so he's just using us. He's planted this church, and now he's raising money, and he, just, he wants to use us, to exploit us, to get us to do what he wants. So Paul's anxious. And what does he do? He spends more than half of the letter laboring 
to reestablish trust with them. He seeks to restore their affection for them. This is a church that loved him at one time. And so he's, he's reminding them of these things. And he does that before he ever mentions the money in 2 Corinthians 8. And when he gets there, he bends over backwards to encourage the Corinthians and to motivate them towards generosity by using the topic of grace. He wants to motivate them by grace. He's not going to manipulate them. This collection is really important for Paul. You need to understand this. This is really important for Paul because about a decade earlier, 10 years earlier, James and Peter and John had agreed that Barnabas and Paul should go to reach the Gentile world. They asked us to remember the poor in Jerusalem. The very thing I was eager to do, Paul responded. So Paul, bound by his promise, has been planning the relief of the poor through these Gentile churches that he planted. In, 1 Corinthians, in the first letter to the Corinthians, he instructed them to be disciplined, setting aside a little bit of their money, a week at a time on the Lord's Day. And a year later, he writes again, and he's got a gentle correction in there because he believes they've become slack in this habit. And so he encourages them to finish what they started. He said you would do this, so I want you to finish what you started. He makes another point. The churches of Macedonia have excelled in their generosity. Who are the churches of Macedonia? Philippians and Thessalonians. He planted both of those churches too. And he's reminding them that, yo, these guys have excelled in Raising money. They have excelled in generosity. They've excelled in giving. And what's amazing about it, and you heard it right here, is that they were extremely poor. The Corinthians are not. The Corinthians are wealthy. Maybe we could think of the Corinthians as Chester County. Maybe the Philippians and, and the Thessalonians came more from Delco. You know, I've made mention of, of Chester County and, and the, what, what the averages are for most of us that live there. When I say that, I have people come up to me and say, yo, man, I don't make that much money. And I get it. I'm not, it's averages. I get it. I'm not saying that every person that lives in Chester County is rich. I'm not saying that. But generally speaking, if you look at the zip code and, and the, the data that you will collect on Chester County, just for those living in the Downingtown East and West school districts, you'll find that Chester County is more wealthy than a lot of other zip codes in America and certainly most of the zip codes in the world. So Paul got something to say to us. And he's saying, I want you guys to excel in this so much. I want you to match them. I want you to do even better because God has entrusted you with more than he entrusted to the Philippians and the Thessalonians. He's gently shaming them into action. He says he's not giving them a command. It's this hope for them that they will give in a way that shows gratitude to Jesus for how rich they have become through his cross. 
And he wants their generosity to be proportionate, proportional to how much wealth they have. So he sends, you guys stick with me. He sends Titus and two other leaders to come to Corinth ahead of Paul to make sure the collection's ready. He's going to pick it up when he arrives. And that way they can avoid being humiliated or embarrassed. Paul's anxious that the whole process is going to be above board. He knows. Listen, traveling preachers and traveling teachers uh, in that time, they could make a big old collection and then make up with the money and you'd never see them again. Paul knows that he's vulnerable to this and he's trying to do this in a way that he's saying, this is going to be above board. I'm giving it to you straight up. I'm not, this is not about me. This is about God and helping those who are in need of relief. He's trying to deal with all their suspicions that would keep them back from generosity. And then he reminds them that God will do good to those who are generous. He reminds them with that famous line, God loves a cheerful giver. He exhorts them to do this for Jesus, to express their faith and hope and responsive action. And it seems that Paul's pleas succeeded because we read in Acts 20 that a team of eight came to Jerusalem and the brothers received us gladly, it says. No doubt the entire collection was delivered to the leadership at the time. So what are we going to do? We're going to spend three weeks Three more weeks looking more closely at this text. And these are the questions we're going to try to answer. What is Christian generosity? Why should Christians be generous? How should Christians be generous? So what, what, why, how? That's what the next three weeks will be. Now here's the challenge that we face. Let me get the band to return. Here's the challenge. Many people, including many of us, We don't feel wealthy. Even though history, even though the objective truth of the matter and history would say that we indeed are wealthy, we don't feel wealthy. We feel pressured. I was talking to a man recently who was adding up all that he had paid for his kids to play sports through their elementary school years, high school years, college. Quarter of a million dollars. That's a lot of money. We, we do these things, and so we don't feel wealthy. Life feels pressured. People are trying to pay their mortgage, trying to take care of kids, trying to pay for school, trying to make car payments. So we don't feel wealthy, and therefore we don't feel like we really have much to give. Incidentally, this is why we want to offer classes like Financial Peace University so people can get some real tools on managing their money so that you're able to give. But Brandy and Grace, here's the challenge for us. If you were to look at our budget, you're going to get our budget review. You'll, you'll get it and you'll look at it. And if you just look at the, the bottom line and the numbers, you could conclude, man, this church got a lot of money. But here's the challenge. 
the challenge is that what oftentimes happens in churches is that churches become dependent upon the generosity of a few instead of what God is calling us all to. It's not equal giving. We're not, it's not like we're going through the line and see, see how much people are giving. That's not what this is about. This is about generosity. It's about giving abundantly. It's about being big-hearted as it relates to you and God, not to everyone else. But we don't want to build our budget based on the periodic, incredible generosity of a few incredibly generous families. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I trust that makes sense. We want to be, I want, and, and, and it's this, too. It's that the call, that if God has called us to be generous, it's, it's this joy that we experience in obeying God in this manner, and we want everybody, no matter how much money you make, to experience the joy of having the value of generosity define you. It's a project of faith. It's easier said than done. Perhaps you've heard of a well-known, and I'll end with this, a well-known social science experiment was done in the 70s. This is incredible if you've never heard this story. Social science experiment done in the 70s on the campus of a theological college, so a Christian college. They set out, they, they put a lot of money into doing this study. And this was the study. They asked a bunch of the students to prepare a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. So these students had worked hard to prepare a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when they had got all their preparation done, they had a due date, they showed up to the class. And when they showed up to the class where they were supposed to be doing their presentations, they were told they needed to go to another building on campus to deliver their talk. Now you know how nervous you are when you're getting ready to deliver a talk, right? So they, they prepared this. They're going to go give a talk. They get there. Nobody's there. And there's, a, there's someone there that's saying, oh, listen, we moved it. The, 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 the talk you're going to be giving is across campus, and they're waiting there for you right now. Get there as soon as you can. On the way, the people that organized this study put an actor in the street, slumped on the sidewalk, moaning in pain and distress. And they wanted to find out how many people who had prepared to give a talk on generosity would actually stop and be generous. Christian college. 50% of the students actually stopped to help someone who was moaning in distress on the sidewalk. It's a lot easier to describe a generous person than it is to be one. That's the challenge for us. 
So this week, let's wrestle. Let's ask ourselves. Let's deal with these concepts. Where am I vulnerable to being allured into the idolatry of money? And how would I evaluate my current experience of generosity given how generous God has been to me? It's a lot easier to describe it, to describe a generous person than it is to be one. But God's calling us to be one. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.